Hello, I'm Kristen Marshand, and welcome to the Apiango Line. We are here again at the old train station in Barry's Bay, happily covered outside with a freshly fallen blanket of snow. We want to thank our live audience for managing to make it here this afternoon, what with all the snow shoveling needed to get the new SUV or the old half-ton truck finally down the driveway and into town. And we'd especially like to thank our podcast audience across the world wide web for making the time to take note of the goings-on here in the upper Madawaska Valley. We appreciate you listening in, whether you're from elsewhere in Canada or from America to Australia, Zurich to Zanzibar. We're all citizens of the world, and we're happy that you chose us to be part of your very own global village. Today, we have something new. It's called The Local. No, it's not some slow-poke locomotive that used to make way for an express train that once shot by outside. Rather, it's a show dedicated to exploring some extraordinary places we have here in our local area, and, in particular, the stories about the people who made those places so memorable. Barry's Bay is not exactly Paris or New York, so here there is no Eiffel Tower or Empire State Building to be had. Still... We do have unique spots, like this old train station, for instance, that does have its own enduring, irrepressible history. But enough about the train station. Right across the road is something called the Balmoral, or as we like to say, the Balmoral Hotel. It was built shortly after this old train station opened its doors on October 1st, 1894. But if its walls could talk over there at the Balmoral, they would surely tell a tale worthy of a great classic novel, if not an award-winning Hollywood movie. It was owned and operated by the Billings family, and as luck would have it, we have one of the Billings clan here with us today. So let's join the host of The Local, Sean Conway, and his guest, Joanne Billings Olson, as they delve into the glory days of the old Balmoral Hotel. Thank you very much, Kristen. Welcome, Joanne. And welcome to uh, a very good Sunday afternoon uh, audience. Delighted to see so many people here to hear what I know will be uh, a lively and engaging story. And we do expect people here to offer their, not just questions, uh, but uh, any of their reminiscences of uh, prayer meetings and other such events they might have uh, (laughs) attended at the Val Morale. So... Let's begin by asking you, particularly for the audience that's not here, this is going to be a podcast, so I might not be in Zanzibar, but I might be in Victoria, British Columbia, and I don't have a very good concept of uh, this uh, place on the, in the middle of Opiango Square here in the upper Ottawa Valley. Um, so let's imagine uh, you're the teenager that you would have been in the mid-1960s, and you, for whatever reason, are here visiting your uncle, Roy Wormke, who happens to be at the train station where we're currently located, and you're walking across to the Balmoral Hotel. Paint a picture of the physical uh, makeup of the hotel as you approach it from the railway station. What did it look like? Uh, it's actually a, it was actually a, wood, uh, a wooden structure, but with uh, artificial-looking brick on the exterior. Um, there are two large portions to the building, the original, well, the, actually the original hotel burned, uh, and then the three-story building uh, was rebuilt. Attached to that is, uh, on, to the right, is uh, a separate entrance, and that would be to the beverage room, which is what my dad called it, the beverage room, uh, and it had a second story with, uh, with rooms, bedrooms that were rented out to it. So if we went in the front door, uh, immediately in front of you, as soon as you would walk into the lobby, was the staircase. The staircase was actually one of my favorite parts of the hotel. Um, and what I liked about it was that it was open right from the first floor all the way up to the third floor. Um, unfortunately, later on, uh, due to fire regulations, of firewalls had to be constructed. So that really did sort of spoil the the whole effect of the open staircase because we could stand at the top of the third floor I could stand at the top of the third floor and see all the way down into the lobby as people would come in the front door 
So the staircase was, uh, even though it was, uh, it was a bit of um, a difficult thing to clean, uh, it really was one of my favorite parts. But you'd walk in and to the right um, was a small seating area. There was a telephone booth there. Um, my younger siblings would like to play in that telephone booth and hide, play hide and seek and close the door and hide in there. Um, there was a table and usually a couple of the local characters <laughs> would be sitting at that table uh, having conversation at any time during the day. To the left in the lobby was um, two... Just excuse me, Joanne, but yeah. there will also be in the lobby a very large chair with a... That's on the other side. Yeah. Right. So on the right-hand side, there was a table uh, with a couple of gentlemen usually seated there. And uh, the entrance to the beverage room was off the room to the right. To the left was more of the reception area, I guess you would call it. And there were two very, very large chairs that my great-aunt Stacia had purchased. Apparently they were custom made for a priest in the valley um, who was a very large man. And they were extremely large chairs. They were constructed of wood and leather. And you know, when you were small, if you sat in those chairs, you felt like you were on the throne. You know, you were a queen or a king. Uh, one was actually a rocking chair. The other one was uh, was just a normal chair. And then there were other seats in there. So when people would come in, if they were waiting, uh, to book a room or whatever, um, they would sit there. Often, you know, in many for many many years, my grandfather Mark would be seated in one of those big chairs. Uh, he would usually arrive at the hotel in the morning around ten o'clock, and have his standard eight ounce glass of grapefruit juice, which he said was to clear his cobwebs for the day. And then he sort of sat in that chair. Uh, I don't remember Grandpa Mark doing a whole lot of actual work because by the time I was around the hotel, he would have been actually retired. He had been the um, uh, manager of the liquor store uh, when the liquor store was across the street. So, so in 1965, he was in his 70s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was a desk there, um, two desks actually, and then, you know, standard hotel desk, a big plaque on the wall where the keys would be kept and held. Um, and that was basically what the main front part of the hotel looked like. If you went down the hall past the staircase, uh, on the right-hand side there was a uh, smaller beverage room. It was called the Josh Room, and I'm not really sure um, I was kind of, there were just certain individuals seemed to frequent the Josh room. <laughs> so a kind of a private club Kind of almost? a private club, yeah, I think so. Uh, I presume a young teenage female wouldn't be allowed within no, 30 feet of the no, door of such places. No, uh, I was not allowed in there, nor was I allowed in the big beverage room. Uh, so it was, it was gentlemen only, it was men's only. And then when you went past the, that, the Josh room, there was another room to the left, uh, and that was the ladies and escorts. So that was, uh, women so were allowed women in there. So women weren't allowed into the same big beverage room with no. men? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, And then you went into the next room, which was the dining room, which is the area that I'm the most, the dining room and the kitchen is the area that I'm most familiar with because when I turned probably 11 or 12, uh, I was allowed to start working at the hotel and I worked uh, in the kitchen washing dishes. There was no dishwasher, there were three sinks in the kitchen. Uh, so I started washing dishes and then probably when I was about 12 or 13, uh, I got promoted to being actually able to wait on tables, which was a big promotion. Just, just for the listening audience, yeah. there would have been a time that the hotel opened in 1894-1895 and for many years afterwards the uh, the hotel and its competitor the Blueberry Hotel where the mm -hmm. Esso station is now located would have been the restaurants that would have been available for most people would that be fair to say I would I would imagine so I'm not I don't really know that for a fact um, the dining room really was a dining room um, there was no food served in the bar at that time uh, no the only food was in the dining room, and the dining room, uh, I would say, was pretty fine dining. I mean, we had white linen tablecloths. Those linen tablecloths were washed at the hotel upstairs on the third floor. Uh, 
in a wringer washer and then hung out to dry and starched and ironed in a, in a mangle thing that kind of pressed the sheets. Um, so Presumably yeah, every day. Every day, yeah, every day. Um, and we had, you know, we had lovely china uh, silverware on the tables. So before I got promoted to waitress, in uh, every morning I had to polish the silverware. So I, I, I kind of got that I didn't like breakfast because eggs, if you want to know, uh, do tarnish silverware a lot, <laughs> and it takes a lot of work to clean, uh, to clean, and particularly the forks. But um, so, and then attached to the dining room was the kitchen. With uh, for anyone who was ever. In the hotel, we had this big, huge, giant stove. The stove was a wood stove that was eventually converted to oil. Uh, what fascinates, or kind of fascinates me now, I didn't think about it much at the time, but there was no, there was no way of checking temperature of the ovens or you know, uh, adjusting the temperature of the stove, because it was just, you turned it on, the oil worked, and it just got hot very, very hot in the summer. It would be 120, 130 degrees in that kitchen. Um, no air conditioning, uh, no ceiling fan. Um, and attached, there was a little walkout uh, to the outside off the kitchen, and then a, a walkout uh, uh, to a walk-in refrigerator. And it was huge. The, the, the refrigerator was wonderful. So on those days when it was 120 degrees in the kitchen, uh, you made many trips to the refrigerator <laughs> to try to cool off. Um, a few other things I remember about the kitchen was the flower bin. You know, it was a, a pull-out flower bin where all the flour was kept. Um, uh, what else? We had a cupboard. There was a special cupboard where all the home-baked pies were kept. Not quite sure why they were stored there, but, but it was close to the stove, so I think it kind of kept them warm, maybe. Um, and if you went in search of Andrew Sobolski's potatoes, where would you find those? Andrew Sobolski's potatoes would be in the basement. So there was a, a basement, not a full basement in the hotel? Full basement under all three sections. Um, so, under the beverage room uh, was basically beer. <laughs> Seems to make sense. Cases and cases of beer which were delivered and my dad had this wooden slide was, uh, that they'd bring the cases of beer in and then just slide the cases down the slides and my brothers like to slide on that wooden slide as well. Uh, actually my son remembers, he's five, when he was five or six he can remember sliding on the wooden slide as well into the basement. So that basement had beer uh, under the, the reception area and a lobby was mostly just um, storage I guess for lack of a better word. But then under the dining room and kitchen there was a a big wooden door, it was huge. And uh, when you opened that, you went into the basement under the kitchen and, and, and the dining room and it, it was a dirt floor. So this wooden door was kind of creepy actually. <laughs> so there was usually cobwebs. So I, my job would be to take a bucket and go down into the basement and the potatoes, we, we bought all the potatoes locally, mostly from Dr. Sobolski's parents. Uh, would be stored in that sand in the basement. So you'd go down and dig through the sand and fill your bucket with the potatoes and then bring them up for peeling every single day. How, how uh, typical was that for the hotel in terms of um, taking local supplies? Yeah. The Sobolski farm, well known up by, yeah. on the road to Carson Lake, by Sobolski Lake, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were there, was there a, a pattern of uh, the hotel kitchen uh, getting other produce from the area? As, yeah, I think as much as possible. I think that's kind of, um, you know, now we talk about the 100-mile. Yeah. Uh, I think basically the family, I think, tried to support local farmers as much as possible. We got all our eggs from Kilby's Farm, which is between Golden Lake and Eganville. Um, my dad used to take me with him to the farm to get the eggs. We'd go every week, uh, and I can't even imagine how many dozens of eggs, big flats of eggs that we would bring home. But dad took me because the Kilbys had a son, and he thought that maybe if I married one of the Kilbys' sons, <laughs> we, would, we would get our eggs a little cheaper. 
<laughs> Good for Jack. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, like other produce or other? Um, for example, could would the could I get local fish in the hotel? Would they ever? I don't remember that we serve fish very often. To be honest with you, um, not even on Friday. It's a good question, actually. Prop, maybe we do. If it was, it was probably salmon loaf or something like that, and baked beans maybe. But um, fruit, like anybody local who would pick blueberries or raspberries, my 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 dad would would buy from them. Um, there was a. a, a we called him the one-armed man who came uh, once a week with uh, fruit from the Niagara region, uh, apples and peaches and things like that. So all the pies were home-baked and there was no canned filling, none. So I presume the women ran the kitchen. Uh, oh yes. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the female management of that part of the hotel. Uh, you must have had a good roster of cooks, and there was wait staff, and mm -hmm. this would yeah. be a different kind of hospitality than I might find at Josh's room, right? Yes, totally different. Um, my first, you know, when I would have started at the hotel, I think you have to remember that, you know, when we were little, when we were, we didn't live at the hotel. I think a lot of people thought we grew up there, but we didn't live there. And, and the hotel was a place that my dad went to work. So we didn't go to the workplace. We didn't, we didn't hang out there. So, you know, when I hit the age and was able to go wash dishes, that was pretty, that was pretty, uh, quite a significant privilege. But at, when I started then, uh, there were two sisters, two spinster sisters. Uh, their names were Margaret and Teresa Devine, the Devine sisters. <laughs> and, well uh, remembered by many in this room, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so they actually lived at the hotel. They had two rooms. One of the things I didn't mention was um, there was a back staircase. So there was the front staircase that was the formal staircase, but there was also a back staircase that went from the dining room up to two rooms at the top uh, of the stairs there, and that's where the Divine Sisters Margaret and Teresa lived. And they lived there until they passed away. So they worked the kitchen. Um, Teresa was very, very tall and Margaret was very, very short. And so they kind of had, uh, Margaret did most of the, uh, you know, the, the tidying up, the cleaning up, that sort of thing. And Teresa was the cook. But then after that, there were several, several, several local, local women. Uh, Marion Conway, I remember Marion. Mary Prince from Wilno. Um, uh, Mrs. Kubischewski, I can't think of her first name. I think it was Mary. Um, Sally Trubinsky, one of my favorites, uh, and I learned all the tricks of the trade from those cooks. They, they were uh, amazing cooks, you know, and nothing was wasted, absolutely everything was fresh. Um, the menu was pretty limited. We, we had nothing deep fried. There were no French fries or there were no deep fryers. Um, so if you give us an example of a menu for a typical weekday typical uh, day? when people were coming in to have lunch or dinner. Uh, tomato, I can I can picture it because it was almost the same every day. Uh, <laughs> apple juice, tomato juice, uh, always a homemade soup, and the homemade soup built as the as the week went on from the leftovers. Um, there would always be roast beef, roast pork, baked ham, sometimes roast turkey, and then that would come with all the fixings. In the summer, there was a cold plate. Um, so that would include like hard-boiled eggs, fr fresh tomatoes, cucumbers, that kind of thing, and usually like sliced cold meat. And then um, the desserts would at least three or four different pies, rice pudding, tapioca pudding, bread pudding, all homemade. Um, we had uh, traveling salesmen that would come on, you know, on Tuesday night, I remember Tuesday night, there would be this one gentleman from, he sold um, McCormick's biscuits. And so, you know, he liked rice pudding. So you always made sure that there was rice pudding on Tuesday. He looked forward to that. There was a lawyer from Renfrew, Mr. Chown, who had office hours in, Bar in Barry's Bay and he would stay at the hotel and he had his favorites. So you always made sure that, um, you know, their favorites were on the menu for the day that they came. Before we get any further along, we've talked about your grandfather, Mark, and your dad, Jack, uh, but one of the people that um, many of us remember from the hotel, you will have a memory of her as well, is your 
great aunt Stacia, mm -hmm. who, in my memory, was a formidable presence and force around that hotel. What do you remember about Stacia? Um, my great aunt Stacia died when I was uh, about eight, I think. But I do remember her very, very well um, because Stacia and John. Uh, John Dunnigan. John Dunnigan. Her husband. Her husband. Uh, never had any children, and they lived in the house right next door to the hotel, which is now called Jack's house. Um, and Stacia, well, maybe because I was thinking about this the other day, maybe because I was little, I thought of her as a very large woman. She had a presence. She was quite eccentric. She liked her furs and her fine jewelry. And um, I know you've asked me where the influence came from in terms of the linen tablecloths and the silverware in the dining room. I know that Stacia traveled a lot. Like she went to Ottawa. I'm sure she spent time at the Chateau Laurier or whatever. And she would see that. So she wanted that for the hotel here. Um, she was a very generous person. Um, for me, my fondest memory is uh, I started taking piano lessons, but we didn't have a piano at home. So I would go from school to Anastasia's to practice piano, and the biggest thrill would be to be invited to stay for supper because every meal that Stacia prepared had an appetizer. Um, she made a big fuss over, over my Uncle John. So it was a real treat to have supper with them as opposed to at home with the gang. <laughs> well, let's just pick up on that because the Billings clan seemed to have the, uh, the hospitality gene. Your great-grandfather, John, known as Josh, mm -hmm. um, came to Barry's Bay, to the area uh, in the late 19th century, started with a stopping place first at Bark Lake, west of the current village of Barry's Bay, then at a second stopping place east of some place around Hopefield, I think. Mm -hmm. Bob Corrigan's here, we can ask him later. Mm -hmm. um, he ran a livery, I think, between the two, built the, the hotel uh, with Joe Prince's help in uh, the 1894, uh, operated this, uh, Stacia, I think, and your great uncle Basil, Basil yeah. operated the Beresford Hotel in Killaloo, where mm -hmm. they served only warm tea, I'm told. Um, <laughs> so, uh, where do you, th there was quite a, it was quite a tradition of the Billings clan uh, being in uh, hospitality mm -hmm. activities, whether it was the stopping place at uh, Park Lake, which I doubt had a linen service uh, in the 1880s, but I could be wrong. Uh, uh, any sort of comment on that? They seem to be very, it's a tough business. It's, uh, it's one though, they seem to, they were in a very long time. I, it, is a, it is a very difficult business. I think that's something that people don't understand. To answer that question, I have absolutely no idea where this uh, trend towards hospitality, but I think, you know, uh, genetically, maybe, <laughs> we have a, a gene that we just like people. Um, and uh, I love to entertain, and I love to have parties, I love to have fun. So I think I got a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of that gene, but I really don't know. I have no idea how they got into it. But you're right, in terms of hard work, um, you know, I, we never felt, uh, well, I never felt growing up that we did, uh, that we had hardship or anything. But, you know, as you get older, you start to realize, I mean, my parents uh, never had a vacation. That just was unheard of. Our own, our vacation would be uh, a trip to Ottawa for back to school shopping. And that was our vacation, because it's you know the hotel, the beverage room would close perhaps on Christmas Day, but the rooms are always open, always available. So it's 365 and 365 days of the year, and uh, my dad would be up at six in the morning down to the hotel. Dining room opened at seven, and the beverage room would then close at one. It's a very long day. It's a long, long work. It's day. almost an unfair question because you were again a teenager, uh, and then you went off to the University of Toronto, what, 1973. Three. So, but I just get this image, and I have a, more than an image, a memory of your dad, Jack, kind of being responsible in whole or in part for the beverage room, and Great Aunt Stacia running a lot of the rest of the operation, but particularly the uh, the dining room. Now, that would have been an interesting creative tension, those two businesses, a, a food <laughs> business and a, um, an alcohol business in a place like Barry's Bay where there was, uh, you know, people knew what it was. 
Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And people that uh, I remember at the hotel coming uh, from local lumber operations, some of them, you know, having been penned up for days and weeks at a time, and they would get to, to the hotel in Barry's Bay, and they did here in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s what they had certainly done in hotels in places like Ottawa and Hawkesbury and Pembroke through previous generations, and it could be a very lively time. Do you have any memory about how they kind of managed to keep a reasonable semblance of order, given those constituent <laughs> parts? Uh, one of my brothers, Grady, would probably be a better one to answer those questions about the bar, because, uh, like you say, I, I wasn't allowed in the bar, and, and, and you know, was, I think my dad went out of his way to kind of keep me away from the bar uh, in terms of the language I'm sure that went on in there. I'm told, I, and I know it existed, that he did have a metal pipe that was under the bar and apparently if things got a little rowdy in the bar, the pipe would come onto the counter but he never ever had to use it. Um, so uh, I don't have any great stories about, about the bar. But in terms of the, there was a very distinct difference between the beverage room and the dining room. Yeah, that seems to be yeah. kind of a given. Yeah. You mentioned metal for a moment. Uh, I remember those uh, great staircases, those fire escapes. Oh, Tell me a little bit about those, because they must have yeah. been quite attractive to kids who are around looking, oh, we could go up and I think I spent a little bit of time on one of them with probably. somebody, <laughs> I think your brother probably. Probably. Uh, yeah, there were two, two or maybe, maybe three, I can't even remember. I know there was one at the front and one at the side. I mean, then they were wrought iron, but open, like open uh, metal uh, fire escapes. I, I really had, I think I developed my fear of heights when I had to go out on those fire escapes and, and shake out rugs and things. I didn't like them because they were very open and very unsteady. I, and I don't know that they were ever really used. used. And each room, uh, each room on the floors had a, a rope, this huge big rope under the window, which I guess if there was a fire you were supposed to throw that rope out the window and, and climb down the rope, but um, yeah, the fire escapes. The rooms... Um, Tell us a little bit about, about uh, for a generation that's now going at a high price to the neighborhood spa with all manner of creature comforts, just what would, what would I encounter when I walked into the hotel room of 1960. Uh, a bed. <laughs> <laughs> a double bed. Well, actually, they weren't even double beds. I think they were 36 inch or something. A very unusual uh, beds. And each room had a sink, just a sink, uh, and usually a dresser. Uh, but we, you know, my Aunt Stacia would make sure the every dresser had a linen scarf uh, that had to be washed and also starched and pressed and done properly uh, all the all the bedding was was washed there it was very very fussy a lot of rules about the cleaning um, there were only two washrooms on the, on the second floor uh, one at one end and one at the other and they had a big clawfoot tub we didn't have shower um, but there was a handheld gadget that you could attach to the clawfoot tub um, the floors uh, were all linoleum, and when I started working at the hotel and was working upstairs helping out, uh, Mrs. Yantha, Martha Yantha, was was in charge upstairs, and we. This would be the mother of Tony and Doc Yantha of uh, Barry's Bay Dairy fame. Right, right. So Martha was in charge upstairs, and I remember Martha as being also very tall. <laughs> And uh, we'd scrub those floors, and then she, Martha would come and check, mm -mm, not good enough, do them again. <laughs> and then when they were finally good enough, then the liquid wax was poured on, and then the polisher. And that was done every day. So that would be done, uh, we would close the dining room at about 10 after breakfast. So you had from 10 to 12 to get upstairs, get all the rooms changed, get the sinks clean, get the washrooms clean, get the floors done, get the laundry in, and get back downstairs for noon for, for lunch. You, you leave me with the impression that at least in the woman's world of the hotel, the dining area, the, the, the looking after the rooms, there were, to use your phrase, many rules and they were applied. Who applied them and how? 
Uh, well, I obviously don't remember Anastasia. I'm sure she established the rules, uh, but then she died when I, you know, when I was in grade three. So actually, great Uncle John, very fussy. So uh, you know. So as a young person working there, you, you were clearly left with the impression that you better meet the standard yeah. or there else. Were, there were no special privileges, no. Uh, and I was expected to arrive at you know, quarter to seven in the morning uh, in a white uniform with white shoes and stockings, uh, no bare legs even in the heat of the summer, hair up off the shoulders, yeah, rules. One of the things that I remember the old timers talking about when I was younger were things called sample rooms. Mm -hmm. So what is a sample room? Who was there? What was on display? And who showed up to uh, access the wares? As best you know the story. Well, I think the sample room was actually the Josh room, which the little beverage room that kind of became the private, private beverage room. Sample room is when the traveling salesmen would bring their wares. Uh, and then the local businesses who were going to buy from them would could come and see the samples. Yeah. And, and the wares could be as varied as? Fabric, uh, tools, you name it. Maybe the Yakabuskis came and looked at samples of things, I don't know. That happened before my time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's talk about um, your dad, what, what's your memory? Because your, your parents both were, as you say, it's a family business, so, and it's a business that operates 365 days of the year. Well, what memories, now that you're, you know, in middle age, um, um, what, what, do you, what do you think about in terms of uh, what your parents lived with? Uh? Well, my mom was a stay-at-home mom because my dad basically, as I said, was an employee of the hotel until probably uh, well into the early, well, late 60s probably, um, because the hotel business actually was run as the estate of Basil J. Billings for years and years and years. And then eventually my dad uh, tried to get that settled so that there would really only be one owner and it made it easier to manage. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She did some supply teaching. Uh, but once it kind of, be dad became uh, the owner and the manager, um, mom took a much bigger role. And then of course dad died when he was just 61. So then mom took over the management role with uh, the help of my, my brother Grady. Um, dad was a much easier boss than, <laughs> than Uncle John. He was a little bit easier to get, but the, the, the hotel was changing then too. Um, you know, they got a liquor license and then that changed and I think to get the liquor license they had to be able to have food in the beverage room and so they started getting, I remember this little machine that looked like a primitive microwave and they served these chuck wagon sandwiches or something that were made terrible things. Uh, <laughs> but but just to back up a moment, people I think would be surprised to hear you say and they got a liquor license because People in 2020 would just assume, well, if you were a hotel, you always had a liquor license or the equivalent thereof. Clearly, that's not the case. What was the license before you got the liquor it license? It was uh, beer, beer and wine. And wine. Beer and wine, but I think 99.9% .9 beer. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a little more, too, about Jack, John Dunningham, whom I do remember, but I remember him as a very kind of uh, standoffish, very nice guy, but he was... Uh, Unlike your grandfather, Mark, who always was sitting in that chair when I would in, he was very friendly. John was very nice, but a little more quiet. And, and I think he was a very quiet man. Um, he, was, he was actually extremely good to me in terms of, uh, you know, helping me with my university education and so on. Um, but I can say he loved baseball. I know that. And he, he went every Sunday afternoon baseball game, and he loved peppermints. He always had a bag of peppermints in his car. Um, he was a quiet man, but but he he was a he was a tough boss. Like he had high expectations. You know, I mean, in that dining room, for example, um, you would never ever take a glass of water or juice to a table without a tray. Um, your hands were not to touch the glasses. That was very important. It was very fussy. I'm not sure where that came from. But. So one of the things, I mean, great novels have been written about hotels and uh, 
I suspect there's a very good novel or two or three about the ball morale. Ball, ball moral? I better, we, we, the ball morale. Ball morale. Uh, but I think about some of the characters I used to know and meet. One of, one of the country's best writers is a fellow named Roy McGregor, who was born and raised in Whitney, whose father, some of you will remember, is Dunk McGregor, Jack McRae's brother-in-law. And Dunk McGregor, um, who is the subject of some of his son's very talented writing efforts, uh, used to take a sabbatical at the Balmoral. And I remember coming to see Dunk, who was originally from uh, Eganville, and who basically spent his entire working life in the bush of Algonquin Park. And I really regret that I didn't have a notepad to just listen to Dunk on a fall afternoon over at the Balmoral, who would be regaling me with tales large and small and uh, so what about characters that you remember you don't have to mention any names but would I be right in saying that there's a novel in you someplace just <laughs> reciting some of what you saw heard and were told not ever to repeat yeah. <laughs> probably yes um, I do remember Duncan McGregor I think uh, his wife used to say it was her vacation because Dunk would come and spend a week at the hotel and he had his favorite room at the top of the stairs it had to be there um, he uh, and he would basically spend the afternoon and the evening in the, in the beverage room uh, chatting with the locals and telling stories and whatnot um, characters we had the borders um, the borders the borders yeah. As in room and borders. Room and board, yes. What, is, what does it mean to say a border? These are people there for a continuous period of time? Mm -hmm. Oh, they lived there. Mm -hmm. So like, you have to remember there was no water tower lodge. There was no sort of... Uh, seniors apartments. Seniors apartments. So and they were all men, uh, either widowers or men who had never married. And um, yeah, they stayed at the hotel. Um, Paid, paid for their room and their meals. Um, I can't remember exactly the cost, but I'm sure it was next to nothing because that was my dad. Um, it would be whatever you can afford. Um, and they were all characters. Uh, one of my favorites, I'm sure. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. His name was Jimmy Sullivan, and I. He was my favorite. He was a, a little man. I just remember he was he was rather small in stature and. And uh, he was so easy to please in the dining room. And every Friday, uh, at the end of the day, he would always take my hand very, very quietly and put a quarter in it. And he'd say, that's for the show tomorrow. You can go to the show. <laughs> or for ice cream. You told me a story about a particularly um, interesting event that occurred in which you were involved. Now, you may not want to answer the question, but do you want to sort of give a sanitized version of that day when <laughs> something happened at the hotel? Mm -hmm. and well, Sean asked me if there was to, to share a story with, with him, and I think he was asking me, you know, about uh, the glory days, which is what the title of this podcast is, The Glory Days. So I told him a story about that's not so glorious. <laughs> uh, a gentleman came, I don't know who he was, I have no idea what his name was, I still have. Uh, and haven't really wanted to check it out, but some gentleman came and took a room, uh, and he wanted to be on the third floor. The rooms on the second floor were a little bit more upscale. The third floor, uh, they weren't, you know, they were they were fairly clean and everything, but they weren't quite as well uh, decorated. Let's put it that way. So he wanted a room on the third floor, and he did not want to be disturbed at all. So, fine. So my dad said, don't worry about there's a man in such and such a room. Don't worry about the room. You don't have to tidy it. You don't have to do anything. But after two or three days, my dad got a little worried because no one had seen this man come out of the room. So there was always an extra key to every room. So my dad opened the room and sadly, the man had fallen. He, I think, had had uh, too much to drink and uh, had fallen and hit his head and had died. So there, you know, the, the, there was uh, the police came, etc. Um, but it was my job to clean that room after this gentleman had bled out, uh, yeah, and, uh, and had passed away. So that was not a pleasant task. It took me probably about two days to try and clean that room. But that's kind of a not pleasant story.
Joanne Olson about the glory days of the Balmoral, but we'd like to hear from anyone in the audience who has a story to tell or a question to ask. My name's Marie Villeneuve-Scott. Um, I'm uh, originally uh, from Barry's Bay. I've been here all my life, uh, except for traveling around in my career. But back in the 70s, um, Bill Hool and I uh, started the first uh, girls hockey team. And the first year we had to borrow the boys' jerseys. And it was so difficult because we had to work games around when they were playing. Uh, so the next year, a friend of mine, Mary, uh, Mary Blank and I, we were like, we've got to get our own jerseys. You know, we've got to do this. So where did we have our meetings? <laughs> At the Balmoral. Anyways, and we were there, I remember, one, uh, one afternoon, which went into the evening. And uh, I'm not sure who we spoke to, but we ended up getting two jerseys. And that was the start we needed um, to get our own jerseys. And um, I still have mine. I have jerseys from all the teams that I've played on because uh, I continued to play hockey for about 20 years. But, uh, and I'm a Habs fan, but uh, <laughs> back in the day there weren't many of the red and whites around, so uh, we ended up with the blue and white. And I like to think that they supported me because I was a very strong supporter of those of them <laughs> back in the day. To, today I, I'm not a beer drinker, but uh, I remember that's all you could get before. And it was funny too because of the ladies' room and, and when it when they first lowered the drinking age, it was it was 18. It wasn't 19, so you could get in there when you were in high school. And I remember one of the things I fondly remember about uh, about the ladies' room is that you sat in the table right at the right-hand side because that's where the buzzer was if you needed another round. <laughs> and I'm not sure where it rang, but somebody always came. <laughs> that's my story. Many, many fun times I, I had there. I remember one of the high school teachers in grade 13 that we used to, I used to have spares on Friday, and we used to go there, and there was a lot of politics, sports, school, everything that was discussed for hours on end. Had a lot of fun times there. Thank you. Thank you. Cameron Pawlitsky. I just think of your uh, prayer meeting comment. Most masks used to call the Balmoral Hotel the shrine because people walk in with, some would walk in with canes or crutches, but they didn't need them at the end of the <laughs> Corrigan looks yeah. pregnant with Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bob Corrigan. Uh, just five or ten minutes before coming here, I thought I should check in some old newspapers and see what I can find on the billings. So there were several interesting things. I'll leave this with you later, Joanne. Um, uh, there's one in particular here. I have to be careful of what I read out. <laughs> but interesting, in 1894, there was a, a Michael Billings as well. Would that be a brother to Josh, perhaps? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, they were, they were getting liquor licenses, which was quite a procedure. And Michael Billings had his tavern on the Opiongo Road near Bark Lake. So that would be out by past Carson Lake. And John Billings, very formal, they always called him John, but I think he was better known as Josh. Uh, he was getting a license too for the Opiongo Road between Daly's and Barry's Bay. So that's where they were in 1894. And here's one. Now, I don't want to offend anybody who's in the Billings family or the Drohan family, but <laughs> <laughs> this is all public information and it's uh, quite interesting about how things operated back in 1895. And here's what the article says. Last week, an assault and battery case was tried before G.W. McDonald, J.P. The complainant was James Drohan, the defendant, John Billings, both of the township of Sherwood. There, there had been trouble between the two over a road, and Billings threw Drohan on a log pile, then threw an axe at him, <laughs> and threatened to make his days shorter. <laughs> Billings was fined $10.14.25 cost. <laughs> so, lots of interesting stories from the past. <laughs> Just if I can, uh, Kristen, on that, Bob makes a, a very, very good point. If you were in the uh, 
the hotel business at any point, and this is a big part of the Billings era, but at any point from about, well really from the time there was settlement here through to about 1930, the regulation of alcohol was an impossible job. Uh, it was a hugely controversial issue and the, the, the options were ban the whole business, total absolute prohibition and that was actually tried as a wartime gesture between about 1916 and about, I think it ends in 1925. They just gave up because they simply couldn't enforce it. And they tried then a whole bunch of other things. And, um, and it's hard to convey to people today just the vigor and the division and the toxicity of the liquor question. Every time I look at the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, which was established in the mid-1920s, that's when they basically kind of gave up and said, we can't ban it, you know, it's the devil's work, so we have to recognize it and try to regulate it. And that's what the Liquor Control Board was all about. But to Bob's point, the newspapers, the two local ones that I think about it, the Eganville Leader and the Rent for Mercury were owned and operated by what could only be described as violent teetotalers. I mean, they denounced the evil drink of all kinds. And the government of Ontario for decades used to appoint liquor commissioners. They were always changing the rules, trying to make, um, make something work. And so what they would do is they would appoint three people. Uh, and if you read the, uh, the old-timers column in the Eganville Leader, you can see this. But you have to know what you're reading. Patty McHugh, who was the editor, and some of you here who are, are Roman Catholic will maybe know the name Father Dowdle. Well, Patty, the editor, the, actually the Eganville Leader was launched by Father Dowdle, and his brother-in-law was the editor for 40 years. And no more violent teetotalers existed than that, that crew. So the pages of the Eganville Leader uh, reflect this. So the liquor commissioners would head out, I, think it was, I forget what time of the year, and they would go to every official and sometimes non-official licensed establishments in the electoral districts and make a public report. And you should, I should haul some of this stuff out and bring it up here because, um, and I don't mean to be, you know, uh, critical of my home district, but certainly the rent for Mercury would, would tell you that the, um, the liquor commissioners, and their job was how well is the liquor law of Ontario being observed? And it would read something like this, town of Renfrew is, 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 is good. The village of Cobden is perfection itself. And I'll just leave the rest for your imagination. The further westerly they move, <laughs> from Douglas to Eganville, Killaloo, Barry's Bay, well, I won't use the language, but like Bob just read, it's all public. And let me tell you, um, it, was not, uh, it was not very complimentary. But what you have to know is that it's being offered up to you by people whose view was the only way to manage this is to outlaw it completely. And one of the funny things, by the way, I don't know whether anybody in this room knows, has anybody here ever heard the, from your grandparents the word script? Well, it, I used to hear it all the time, and I didn't know what it meant. Well, one of the things about prohibition they uh, agreed to was, well, we can't ban it absolutely. So if you need alcohol for medicinal purposes, <laughs> you can go to your doctor and the doctor will write a prescription. Uh -oh. And uh, the script, we made it, you know, with, with good intentions, the various governments of Ontario from about, well, particularly in the, the well, the, the early two or three decades of the 20th century, turned a lot of doctors into bootleggers, and they did very well, some of them, uh, because liquor as liquor was banned, but liquor as medicine was preferred, and some doctors actually got in the business of retailing their own very special medicinal alcohol. <laughs> so if you were running a hotel, uh, as the Billings family did through all of that, uh, you really had to contend with all of these rules and regulations in an area where the evidence did suggest that many people thought this prohibition was some kind of craziness brought to earth by Martians or some other non non earthly people. Well, I think we need some other stories from the Balmoral. 
sometimes called um, over to MV on a Friday afternoon that was pay week, uh, the bad morals. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Terry Rakoski uh, from Barry's Bay. The ball morale for me and my memories, uh, Joanne's dad, Jack, he was a great hockey supporter, the Barry's Bay 78s, he and uh, the ball morale selects in softball. And uh, I did many trips with him and Sylviantha to the Pembroke Lumber Kings. And uh, Jack was a good, he was a great supporter of ours, but he had, there was always uh, something behind it because after every hockey game and after every ball game, there would be 14, 16 guys going into the hotel. <laughs> and it wouldn't never stop at one. So there was always, but the end, if we won, the first one was on Jack, always. And another thing that I remember a lot on uh, the ball morale was on Friday nights of a long weekend. That was the meeting's place for everybody coming home from the cities. And you got there at, you had to get there early to get a seat. And it was a conversation and you met all your friends. It, there was no texting, there was no phoning people back then. You forgot all your information was on Friday nights. And sometimes uh, the guys mostly would return on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but Jack was a great supporter of sports in our town and uh, we missed him dearly. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Peter Glavczewski. Hi. So I have two or three little stories. I've got a lot more, but I can barely say it. I should only tell the, the ones that I can get away with. So. <laughs> Could you say your name again? Peter Glavczewski. Thank you. So the first one probably goes back to about uh, 50 years ago almost now. I had a birthday yesterday, so it's probably that. <laughs> um, and it kind of goes on to what Marie mentioned earlier, too. So we were in high school, and the, the age... A major of drinking age switched to 18. So I don't. I won't say I was ever in the ball morale before that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we thought, well, okay, we're big shots now. It's we're 18. We can go there uh, at lunch hour from high school. So like she had mentioned, we went down there. There's a bunch of us, and we had made a few trips a few different days. And then another day came up, and we walked into the room, and there's two teachers sitting at the table. <laughs> they got there ahead of us. <laughs> Uh, fast forward a little, a little bit then, say 15, 16 years later, my brother Ed worked for quite a few years at the Balmeral. Mm -hmm. He was a bartender. So I was already married. I had a family going. And, but, you know, you, you play hockey and you stopped at Balmeral on my way home before I go home. And my brother Ed was working there and he quite often, of course, had to serve me. So one, the, that was a Friday night, I think. The next the Saturday night we invited over to my mother. She had a big turkey dinner for us. And the uh, first thing my mother said to me when I walked in the door was, you had six rye at that ball morale last night. <laughs> I said, what? Eddie was tattling on his brother. Like, I'm, I'm 13 years older than Eddie, but that didn't seem to work. Uh, so then I'll fast forward now a few 15, 20 years more ahead. And uh, we're talking about my son, but I won't say his name. <laughs> so it was the same thing when we were young. You'd borrow somebody's ID to get into the liquor store, to get into a, you know, a, a beverage room or whatever. Shocking. And so my brother, my, my son was well of age. He, was, uh, he had no, no problems. So he went into Ball Morale one night and looked at a table. Two of his first cousins who both had his cards. <laughs> We're sitting at the table, so there was three so-and-so Glavczewskis in the ball row that night. There you go. Kristen, both Peter Glavczewski and, and Terry Rakoski tell great stories, and, and uh, both of them make reference to sports. I mean, this was, a, when I was growing up here in the 50s, 60s, this was a sports-mad place, especially those grudge matches and hockey playoffs between Eganville and Barry's Bay, baseball was no different. Anybody in the room uh, connected? I know 
Terry certainly was, and Peter mentioned it, but um, I suspect some of the wildest nights around the hotel would be after one of those grudge matches, either baseball or hockey, but I, of course, was young and innocent, didn't know anybody. <laughs> but anybody part of that world, there may not be anybody here, but it would be fertile ground, I would think, for a story. Anybody's old enough. <laughs> Thank you, Joanne. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. The sinking of the Mayflower. The picture. Oh, the picture. Oh, yes, Rebirth. in the Balmoral. This the picture of the sinking of the Mayflower. Uh, that was painted by Art Retza, correct? Yeah. Frank. Frank. Frank Retza. Yeah. And it hung in the Josh room. I actually have a picture of it. And this is Roy McGregor's book. There's a, a picture of the Josh room with, uh, with, the, um, with the painting. Dead Man Saves Three. three. Dead Man mm -hmm. Saves Three. Dead Man Saves Three. It's a painting of uh, when the Mayflower sank. Uh, three survivors actually um, survived because they hung on to a casket. Uh, a, a body was being delivered to Combermere. Um, yeah, so it's actually, I, I believe it's still, it's it's still, still in the hotel. Yeah. And for anybody out there in podcast land who doesn't know what the Mayflower is, Christian, do you want to tell them? No. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to make an inaccurate statement, no. which I may either. Well, if you're listening to this, it was a lake steamer that connected where we are currently located, which would be the northeastern end of Lake Kamenizkeg, to the bottom end of the lake, a place called Combermere, that sank this paddle-wheeling lake steamer, sank a windy November night in 1912 with the loss of several lives. Karen Yakabuski, I don't have anything quite as humorous as the others, sadly, to say, but I wanted to ask Joanne a little more uh, maybe about the recent history when the Balmoral then changed hands and the other question I had was how many rooms, oh. rent, rooms to rent in total were there at the time when your family ran? Uh, when my family ran it, there were 26 rooms in total. Uh, my mom sold the hotel, and I knew someone was going to ask that. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm believe it or not, not uh, a great historian. <laughs> I've always kind of lived for the moment is my <laughs> way of thinking things. But since I got connected with the station here and uh, reconnected with Barry, um, I'm starting to realize that I should have paid a lot more attention to things. But, um, yeah, Mom sold it. Uh, my dad died in 1988. I would think Mom sold it around 2007, maybe? Mm -hmm. No, that's not right. Um, 1998 or 1999, I think she sold. Um, that was a really tough time for my mother. Uh, Mostly, I think, because, um, you know, the hotel had been in the Billings family. My mom was an O'Grady. And I think she felt uh, that it had, you know, it lasted all those years in the Billings family, and then uh, now she was passing it on. But the, it was a very difficult business towards the end, uh, with the trains not coming, um, and uh, liquor laws changing tremendously in the province. Um, it was very, very difficult to, it's an, and it's an old, old building. And old buildings uh, need a lot of money, financial upkeep to keep standing. Uh, fire regulations were changing all the time, so she was having to make uh, modifications to the building. I know many people ask me, well, why would they, you know, why, why did the family not apply for a heritage grant because it was a heritage building? But the problem is, in order to keep it functioning as a business, and to meet the fire standards and codes and so on, you have to make changes. And as soon as you make changes, structurally, you no longer qualify as a heritage building. So it was a, it was a really tough choice for my mom, but certainly from a financial perspective, there wasn't really any, any choice. It's not an easy business to run. Um, you know, one of the things I've mentioned to Sean that I learned from being in the business is that uh, in the hospitality industry, if you want to do well, you have to be prepared to work hard and long hours and hard. 
and keep that family business going. It's not, if once you start having to hire more and more people, your costs go up, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough go. Christian, I want to just pick up on something and, and hopefully others will think about questions or observations or, or stories to tell. But one of the things about the hotel uh, that I gained younger people today might be surprised to hear is that like my parents when they got married in 1948, like all of their generation, the, or most of their generation, the wedding dinner was at the hotel. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, uh, you know, you've, you've heard the, the Billingses, the Devines, the Dunnigans, the O'Grady's, the Coslos, sometimes known as Costellos. It's a pretty Irish clan, so one of my memories involves um, uh, Joanne's, uh, great, uh, Joanne's aunt, the late Gwen Wormke, Mark, uh, Mark Wormke's mother. They would have these marvelous St. Patrick Day dinners um, there with Gwen Billings Wormke on the piano. I was just going to ask about those kinds of special events like weddings and I just mentioned the St. Patrick's Day events because they were pretty vivid in, in my experience and in my memory. But if you got other examples or could you embellish on the ones that I've just provided? Well, like you, I, I don't recall any wedding receptions or anything like that. I know I've, there's, we have photographs of, of Vera. Sean's parents, uh, your, your parents' re wedding reception was at the hotel. I think uh, it basically wasn't big enough now, you know, more recently because people are going to larger, larger uh, venues. But um, the St. Patrick's Day party uh, was something that was, uh, I think, probably for my mom and dad. Uh, they loved they loved the St. Patrick's Day party. It was it was it was quite funny because I was away. I was married by the time they started um, uh, ha hosting those parties, and so my mom and dad would say, "Now you you're coming home for for the St. Patrick's party because we need your help." And my job was it was always quite interesting having lived away for a while. My job was mom and dad would have a list of people who had made reservations. So, you know, there'd be, oh, I don't know, sometimes over 100, 120 people. And I'd be kind of looking at the building thinking, where are we going to put these people? And my dad would say, well, you, you have to figure that out. <laughs> so they would hand me this piece of paper and I'd arrive home and I would start trying to seat all these people. And I'd get it all done and get the, we'd get the tables set, good to go, and my dad would come in and look and say, oh, um, you, you're going to have to move that person. And I'd say, why? <laughs> well, they're not getting along with the person that they're sitting next to right now. They're not speaking. And I, you know, having lived away, I'd be like, seriously, are you kidding me? You know, I have to change everything because these two people aren't speaking. But um, it, was, it was a really good time. Sometimes we had the Kelly family perform live. My mom would always step dance, um, even when she was in her 70s, uh, Irish washerwoman at least once. Um, and of course we were known for our famous Irish cream pie, which still the secret recipe stays in the family, <laughs> not shared. One other question I was going to raise, and somebody raised it during the break, um, there are records of who stayed at the hotel, and this, ho this hotel, the, the hotel and this actual train station built roughly the same time. The guy who built the railroad and built this and paid for this train station, I believe J.R. Booth mm -hmm. stayed at the Balmoral mm -hmm. Hotel. Yes, apparently, yes. Uh, there, are, there were some old uh, records at the hotel that actually showed that he had stayed there. Because mm -hmm. again, prior to really about 1940, you traveled by rail, cars we take as just a given. But uh, roads weren't open in the wintertime, and many highways that we take for granted today just simply weren't opened um, probably until after the Second World War. So if you were coming, um, I mean, I've met a lot of people down the line, as they say, and have very fond memories of Barry's Bay, and it's, it's always the same story. Took the train, went to the hotel, and then visited around and about. But the train, this was, Balmoral was certainly prior to the first, Second World War, a railway hotel. That's how you mm -hmm. got to Barry's Bay, particularly if you didn't live here. Joanne, did you tell us your mother's name? My mother's name? Uh, her maiden name? No, no, her first name. Bernice. Her, yeah. Bernice O'Grady. Well, that about does it for us today.
We'd like to thank you for coming out, and we'd especially like to thank Joanne Olson for bringing the glory days of the Balmoral Hotel very much alive for us today. It was both an honor and an education to hear all about your family and its wonderful involvement with that grand old hotel that's still operating today, some 125 years after it first came into being. That ends our show, and so for our host, Sean Conway, our guest, Joanne Olson, myself, Kristen Marshand, and our producer, Barry Conway, We'd all like to thank you for coming out and taking an interest in the culture and heritage of our little global village, Barry's Bay. Good day. <laughs>